Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Born in Africa, brought to America, she wrote poetry that made her the darling of London and the guest of one George Washington. The end. Let's talk about Phyllis Wheatley. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1773, the first public museum in the North American colonies was established in Charleston, South Carolina, and the first asylum for, quote, persons of insane and disordered minds was opened in Virginia. Captain James Cook became the first person to cross the Antarctic Circle. What would become known as the Whirlpool Galaxy was discovered by French astronomer Charles Messier. Jane Austen's sister Cassandra was born, and in September of 1773, Phyllis Wheatley's book of poetry was published, and she entered literary history. Sometime in April 1761, a little girl whose name we do not know was kidnapped from her family in Africa. The daughter of... we don't know. Does she have sisters and brothers? Maybe? She was taken to a port somewhere along the southwest coast of Africa. It's impossible to know where in Africa exactly she might have even come from. Um, Even her port of departure is in question. But the likely place, at least for her departure, seems to be modern Senegal or Gambia. Which, if Africa looks like a skull looking to the right, we're looking at right at the lower part before it turns back to your neck. Like the last part of the round part of your head. Um, I, again, would like to recommend a quiz on Sporkle, Find the Countries of Africa. I dare you to take the quiz and see what percentage you get. I'm, of course, up to 100 because when we covered the crown and I couldn't place where Ghana was, I was very embarrassed with myself. And so I have been working at all of those quizzes to get my geography back up to snuff. I also went and took the quiz a few times, and I could probably fail it again now, having forgotten where everything was. (laughs) Now, there is evidence, and you know how people are when they have the teeniest, tiniest bit of comment. They're going to try and spin it out to fact. There may be evidence that she is from the Fulani people of Gambia. She never mentioned her life as a child with one tiny exception when she talked about seeing her mother at sunrise pouring some water. And that may, again, all these mays, that may have been a morning prayer done by Islamic people and Gambia was Islamic at the time. Actually, is it still? Yes, yes, I do believe it is currently a Muslim country. So she may have been from Gambia, but again, like you said, it could have been anywhere. It was very common for people to be taken as prisoners of war during inter-country, inter-tribal battles. So Mm -hmm. she could have already participated in a conflict before she even got to the port. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hate to think about it. She was probably taken by a fellow African, which is sad, but we don't know if she was taken with somebody she knew. Or was she just this little girl by herself? Don't know. After her kidnapping from her village of origin, she would be taken to a port where European slave traders would drop by and fill their ships with human cargo for the Caribbean and points north. A slave ship called the Charming Phyllis arrived from Boston, eager to load up and be back on their way because they'd already been at sea for four months. The level of commitment to one's job here is... (laughs) 
<laughs> amazing to me. And they're facing another floor to get home. Every day they stayed off the coast of Africa was a chance for the crew to die of a tropical disease. The white people tried not to go ashore. If they went ashore, they went to what was called a factory, like a holding place, a market, I hate to say, for slaves. And that's as far as they went. So the captain, Captain Gwynn, was under orders to pick up a cargo of boys, 14 to 20, resale value maximum. Don't fill up with women, please. They're hard to sell. This is gross. Yes, but it's true. It's true. I don't mean to make light of it, but that's literally how they talked about it. Oh, I know. I know. It seems like the ship might have arrived late, maybe, because for some reason, the captain's cargo ended up mostly women and children. He was told to get up to 110, but uh, he failed. He only was able to achieve 96. Had he gotten as many as he was supposed to have, the situation would have been even more dire for Phyllis on her journey back because, and oh, I can't even believe they use these terms, slave ships could be either loose or tight packed based on how many human beings were in the hold. Are they laying all flat and chances of suffocating or were they able to have just a little bit of room to move around? Conditions aboard any slave ship were absolutely abysmal. Most adults, male or female, would have been stripped naked and chained for fear of a revolt or of suicide. Sanitary facilities were nearly non-existent. It was just squalor, the smell alone, the sickness that would run rampant based on the squalor. They were fed maybe nothing but rice and water on the journey. The death toll on some ships reached up to 50%. The statistics are appalling. The charming Phyllis arrived in Boston with what the owner, Mr. Fitch, thought was a poor, pitiful return for the investment of time and money that I have provided. This mean cargo, is what he called it, of 74 survivors out of, quote, only 95 purchased? WTF. He was really mad at this captain. I have to tell you something grim. People who died on the way were just pitched overboard. So imagine your young child seeing that happen 21 times because children were typically not chained and often allowed to roam freely on the boat. And due to the smell and the sickness, we're often up on deck. I can't. I can't even imagine a child seeing that once. Well, the poor survivors were ready for auction. This whole thing seems so callous. And I think I'm trying to instill in people listening how disgusted I am by the whole thing, by the way they were treating these human beings like cargo. Mm-hmm. On July 13th of 1761, the first notice for, quote, just imported from Africa a number of prime young slaves from the Windward Coast to be sold aboard the Phyllis. This advertisement appeared in the Boston Gazette. A couple weeks later, another notice appeared, and it was a little bit more realistic. And it said, quote, to be sold a parcel of likely Negroes imported from Africa cheap for cash. I can't effectively even understand, much less communicate, any emotion felt by anyone in this situation. Imagine this tiny, emaciated child wearing nothing but a piece of rug wrapped around her waist like a kilt. And you can guess she's about seven because she's missing her front teeth. She is shaking with fear and also with fever. And a carriage arrived at the wharf, which is at Beach and Tyler Streets, if you're in Boston. A uh, woman named Susanna Wheatley showed up to do a little shopping. She decided she would like to buy a young woman to take care of her in her old age. Mrs. Wheatley was 52. 
Uh, Okie dokie. In an era when life expectancy was 45, but you know that's a false construct because of so much infant mortality. Right. So if you were a woman and you made it past childbearing, you had a pretty good shot of making it to 80, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like everyone just dropped dead at 45. It sure seems like that, though. Um, Anyway, her own children were both 18 and would be leaving the nest soon. She had had three other children who had died uh, years earlier. So she was a mother of five, and now she has two children twins, a boy and a girl, Mary and Nathaniel, who are 18. So this whole thing seemed like a reasonable solution to a rich lady by a companion you could train into a nurse for later when you're super old. Well, she stopped short at the sight of our little subject, still nameless as far as we know. I mean, she had a name, obviously, but nobody knows what it is. Her, quote, humble and modest demeanor and interesting features caused Susanna to reach for her pocketbook. What she might also have been seeing is a reflection of the last child that died nine years earlier was the favorite of the family. Cyril was about seven when she passed away and the family had just recognized the ninth anniversary of her death. So Sarah might have been on her mind and seeing this small child about the same age might have triggered her mother heart. Yeah, it makes total sense to me. Well, the auctioneer, of course, was secretly absolutely delighted. He'd been convinced that this girl was going to be a leftover after the auction, so he's going to have to deal with it. And also, she was raging with fever and might die, and therefore the profit would be zero. So as far as he was concerned, almost any money is better than no money. Which is what Susanna paid. (laughs) She was married to John. He dabbled in a lot of businesses. He was into real estate, wholesale warehousing. He had some dock space. He owned a schooner for that importing and exporting. And his primary job was as a tailor. But this family was extraordinarily wealthy. They already had slaves at their house. This is another slave that they're adding to their household. They also had some white servants who were paid. But we're talking about family with extreme wealth here. Well, and as far as the auctioneer's concerned, there's no accounting for the whims of a wealthy woman. And uh, we certainly don't want to alienate a customer like that who might give us some return business. So he let the child go for a rock bottom price. And soon Mrs. Wheatley was happily driving away with her purchase. She had decided to name the little girl Phyllis after the ship that had brought her to Boston. I do not like that, but there it is. Named after the location of your worst nightmare. Well, Boston at the time was around 15,000 people, and nowadays a town like that would be excited that they finally got a McDonald's. But can you imagine what all the hustle and bustle looked like to Phyllis? If she could even notice anything in her terror, I'm imagining the last year of her life being just one hellhole after another from being kidnapped in the first place by whoever in her village, wherever she was. Did she ever see her parents again? Were they with her? Nobody knows. She never really talked about it. But anyway, the carriage pulled up at the Wheatley House on King Street, which, of course, after the revolution, they renamed State Street. Clever. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Renamed after Liberty, you know. So as we've seen from our Sojourner Truth in Harriet Tubman episodes, just being in the North was no relief from the bad effects of slavery. And youth was certainly no defense from the bad effects of slavery. We can certainly feel very trepidatious along with her, which is not a real word, much to my sadness. But you know the emotion, trepidatious. (laughs) Uh, I'm sad about that. I looked that up. Oh, I would think it would have been a real word. I would have used it. It says informal, which to me means it's not a real word. Oh, okay. To me, it means I could use it. (laughs) That's funny. Well, much to our surprise, all of us researching this subject, and probably Phyllis's too, the Wheatleys seem to have treated her almost as a member of the family. Let's hearken back to 
little seven-year-old Sarah Wheatley, who had died and left this memory. I wonder if this was like a do-over. Maybe. And Susanna was a mother. She had this child in front of her who was clearly sick. She wanted to nurture her back to health. And maybe that just stuck. You know, maybe she became bonded to her. But yes, they they did treat her uh, differently right from the get-go. First, they had to get her strong and healthy again, although she never quite got there for her entire life. She suffered from asthma from this moment on for the rest of her life. They gave her her own room almost immediately, and that's unheard of. I mean, we've talked about servants before, and there's a lot of times that child servants would end up just sleeping on the kitchen floor in a pile. Mm-hmm. Daughter Mary, who was 18, was given the task of nursing this child and also of teaching her to speak English, or at least to understand English, which comes first. You know, you can understand people before you can construct a sentence back at them. Mm-hmm. And so Mary's job was to get her to understand at first simple commands, and then we're moving on to questions and then conversations. So that was Mary's first job. What she didn't expect to see was little Phyllis taking charcoal and trying to write what looked like letters. Now, those people who like to spin little tiny bits into facts say that perhaps it was Arabic. The Fulani people of Gambia were literate. So perhaps she was trying to replicate those letters. But Mary and Susanna said, whoa, she can write? Maybe we can teach her that too. So with the amazing sponge-like brains of childhood, she was doing quite well by the end of her first full year in Boston. There is a French immersion school in my neighborhood, which probably leads you justifiably to roll (laughs) your eyes at all of us over here. But I imagine that the kindergarten students show up and are quite bewildered on day one. But by the end of that school year, they're pretty bilingual. It's amazing to me. And, you know, if kids from other countries that start here at that age mm-hmm. are usually pretty fluent by the time they get to the end of a year. I just wish I still had that facility for learning things that they do at that age. Anyway, she she showed interest. She showed ability to read and write. So stage two, Mary, the tutor, <laughs> began to teach Phyllis using, of course, the main book in everyone's house, which was... The Bible. (laughs) Mrs. Wheatley had also been particularly fond of poetry and had a collection of works by Milton and Pope. There was a copy of the Iliad on the premises. So these were her other school books. Hours and hours a day that one might expect a young slave to be carrying wood or cleaning, Phyllis spent developing her mind. Very unusual and at the time it was generally believed, even by Susanna, that A person like Phyllis, a slave, couldn't learn that kind of thing, that they weren't intelligent. So this was not only surprising to them, but I think it says a lot about their character that they said, okay, let's nurture this. Let's see what she can learn. Within 16 months of getting there, she was not only fluent, but she was writing, reading, and understanding the Bible. And theories, you know, that's crazy to me. Well, by the age of nine, you and I in modern day would consider her fully literate. I mean, even by today's standards, um, in colonial America, fully half of all white women could not be expected to write so much as their own names. It was not considered a priority, though I will tell you men's literacy topped 90% at the time. And for the following reason, because of religion, there was a development right about now called the Great Awakening in Protestant circles. Inwardly, Doctrine-wise, invisibly, it all boiled down to your relationship with Jesus, 
rather than observing the rituals in your Anglican church. So outwardly, though, what you'd see is the difference between a dry history lecture delivered in monotone and a history podcast, if I do say so myself. (laughs) Preachers like George Whitefield, who will come up later, just energized their congregations, brought emotion into the religious experience, made it relatable to the common person, inspirational. You were fired up when you heard one of these guys to do what God intended you to do as your duty. The Great Awakening, which is, this is the first one. Of course, they don't know that right now. So as far as they're concerned, it's the Great Awakening, is where the Methodists come from. There's a teeny tiny theology time. You're welcome. Brought to you by Beckett Graham, atheist. Correct. No, that's great. That's great. So what all of this meant to Phyllis and Susanna and Mary and the rest of the members of the family is reading your Bible, your own self was the key to your salvation. So reading was the key to your salvation. Can I just add though, by a hundred years from now, women had caught up. So ultimately men and women both became in America, very, very literate people. Just Phyllis was on the vanguard. Also percolating in her orbit, this feeling that is happening parallel to the Great Awakening that reading was the key to opposing tyranny. An educated populace is a tyrant's worst nightmare. That's why, especially in the South, slaves were not supposed to be taught to read. The North was laxer at the whole reading thing, but still the Wheatleys uh, were uncommon in allowing Phyllis to develop her natural intelligence. Uh, In the South, she might have just gotten whipped for being smart, you know? Mm -hmm. So she went on to study Latin, geography, history, mythology, astronomy, but not practical skills like housekeeping or cooking. (laughs) Um, She had maybe a little light dusting, uh, might be all she would be expected to do, just like a daughter might be. In fact, um, she would serve tea to the guests at social events. And this was also, speaking of unusual things, this was also unusual to have slaves be a part of the conversation in these social events. But Phyllis was. She was encouraged to speak up. She wasn't encouraged to sit at the table with everyone if they were at someone else's house, for instance. She would sit at a table off to the side. But she was part of the conversation, which was extremely unusual. This is an unusual girl in an unusual family, I think is what this boils down to. I, yeah, I'm constantly baffled as to where the Wheatleys even came from. She was her mistress Susanna's personal companion most of the time. In fact, she was not supposed to associate with the other slaves in the house or even other people of color outside the house. She traveled with the family to Newport, Rhode Island in the summers. Even at this early year in America, people went to Newport for the healthy (laughs) air. Hey, did you know that Newport was founded in 1639 by people tossed out of Boston? because of their religious beliefs. I didn't know that. There's a rabbit hole I fell down because we talk about Newport a lot, you know, when we're talking about Gilded Age things, but this is way before the Gilded Age. They were non-Puritans, including Anne Hutchinson and Roger Williams. (laughs) Well, I did know that because I lived in Rhode Island on a farm estate that was built by the descendant of a man named John Lippett, who came to Rhode Island in 1638. And so that was part of the mythology of the place where I lived. The man that actually built my house, one of the very first Methodists, by the way, (laughs) a little callback for you, was kicked out of his job in Rhode Island for advocating the adoption of the United States Constitution. (laughs) (laughs) 
refugees from all over the place. I don't know how they found a space. You could economically carpet the entire state of Rhode Island. (laughs) Why was Phyllis in Rhode Island? They were there on a social call, and it was there that she made a friend for life, another slave by the name of Ober Tanner, who, like Phyllis, they had a lot in common. She was brought over from the same area, made the same passage that Phyllis had. They were both taught to read and write. So Phyllis had kind of a compatriot, and she was encouraged to have this friendship, which she wasn't, like you'd said, with any other uh, Black people in the area. They would write to each other for her entire life. I have to say, thank goodness for Ober Tanner, because I can only imagine that Phyllis's life was very strange and isolated, and I'm glad that she had someone to talk about it with. So here is a little vignette that combines both just like social freedom and how she was treated in the household. One time she'd been away by herself at some friends of the Wheatleys for an afternoon. It had started to rain. Phyllis had had a cough. Mrs. Wheatley didn't want her to walk home. So she sent the carriage to get her. When she heard the carriage coming back, Mrs. Susanna looked out the window and exclaimed to the ladies that were in the room, that varlet has placed my Phyllis on the box with him rather than inside. She was so angry at Prince, the coachman, who had dared to put a member of the family on the box, i.e. she's getting wet, just like I said not to do, which is why I sent you in the first place. I know. I love the my Phyllis. I mean, that just indicates, you know, the relationships that she has with Phyllis. Now, I want to I, I hate to bring down the, the, the family here, but I do want to point out one thing. Phyllis was still a slave. She had very little freedom. They told her not to communicate with other slaves. So she didn't. She was in bondage. And now I'm not saying that the Wheatleys did this intentionally and they weren't being, you know, uh, braggy McBraggersons about it or all pious, but other society folks could easily read, wow, they have enough money that they have a slave who doesn't do any work. And look how kind and generous these Christians are in educating this poor child. So that was part of how they were seen in the community. So I I don't want to say that they were, you know, everything was golden and rainbows and, you know, bringing Phyllis up. They still owned her. Just wanted to point that out. She was taken into friends' houses. I hope not as a curiosity. I'm sure they had only the best of intentions. But as Susan hinted at, it seemed to me like when Harriet Tubman's master used to tell everyone to come out, look at this little gal who can lift barrels of flour. <laughs> like, isn't this crazy? She has a brain like this. And you know what? I'm sad because they don't have to do anything. You know what I mean? They don't have to do anything at all. So I have to give them the benefit of the doubt. They were the best of their time. Mm-hmm. But I don't discount that there was a little, I don't even want to call it smug. Do we want to even call it pride? in doing this obvious good for people. Mm -hmm. It's like taking your camera on a mission trip. Yes, like Instagramming when you go to work at the soup kitchen. Mm -hmm. You just do it and you don't talk about it. It was awful public philanthropy. And I get that they were excited, but I just hope that they weren't treating her like a sideshow Mm -hmm. inadvertently. And this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what the next part of Phyllis's life is like. 
So tell me, how are your New Year's resolutions as far as your health are going? I can tell you mine were not going too well. I took a look at what I was eating and even after the holidays, it was looking an awful lot like it did during the holidays. I knew I needed to do something to get my health back on track. So I went to takecareof.com. I took their fun online quiz. It asked me about my diet, my health goals. It really did only take five minutes. And in the end, I had a personal scientifically backed vitamin and supplement recommendation. Now, I could have taken that recommendation and gone to the store, but how convenient is that? Going and looking at that whole wall of vitamins to find all the bottles that you need. Is it a B complex? Is it a B12? I don't know. Not convenient, not easy. But what happened is my personalized care of subscription box came right to my door with personalized daily packs. I take it right before bed, same time every day. Why don't you take advantage of this month's special New Year's offer? Get 50% off your first month of personalized Care of Vitamins by going to TakeCareOf.com, entering the promo code CHICKS50, that's C-H-I-C-K-S, and then the number 50 at TakeCareOf.com. are back and Phyllis started writing poetry at around the age of 12. Don't we all? And I have some homework for you. And you too, Susan. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. If you, any of you have any old journals full of poetry, oh, please snap a photo of the most egregious one you could find. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I might have something about the time that J.J. McLean had to take my blood in biology class. <laughs> Was he a handsome fellow? I did have quite a crush on him at the time. <laughs> yes, I did. And he had to hold my hand. <gasps> Susan! My I, 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 know. I know. I might write poetry about that, too. <laughs> <laughs> Fun homework. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I'm like, well, she didn't have a crush on anybody. She wrote about a specific death. So that seems kind of... Kind of punk rock, maybe. Mrs. Thatcher's son is gone unto salvation. Her daughter, too. So I conclude they are both gone to be renewed. Mm, it's not exactly the Smiths. No. It is about death. Uh, fully one third of her poems from her whole life are about someone's death, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's her theme. That's what she likes to write about. Well, uh, the Wheatleys bought her quills and ink and paper and all the supplies she would need. They made sure there was a fire in the fireplace and enough candles for her to use and privacy for her art. A thing that Jane Austen didn't even get. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Man. I mean, the candles alone, candles at nighttime was a big deal. That was quite an expense. And they, they made sure she had enough so she could write in her room at her desk. I love that. Well, Phyllis would show up to breakfast with a packet of new poems to read everybody. And I love it, A, when kids find their passion so early, and B, when they're, I mean, really functionally, we have to be honest with ourselves, parents at this point encourage you. Mm-hmm. And help you. Like they buy your soccer shoes or they take you ice skating lessons or whatever it is. I just love that. Mm-hmm. You know what? I think that might actually be um, a defense for the Wheatleys, you know, proclaiming out in public all this group deeds that they were doing. They were also setting themselves up as a role model, maybe, to other families. Maybe they were proud of her as one would brag about a daughter. Mm-hmm. And so it leaked out that way. Maybe. I hope so. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on that one because they were generally very, very good people. Well, 
everywhere they went, people were just delighted to meet her. She was so engaging and and interesting to talk to. The um, God, the Wheatleys knew the notables. John Hancock, for example, uh, in every field, they were invited to meet her in government. Famous and rich merchants, men of letters, men of God. She'd hold her own in these conversations and debates. But just like before, when she was a little girl, even though she was a young woman now, and she'd been invited to these places, and in fact, was often the guest of honor, Phyllis sat at a little table by herself. I read that it was on her own initiative. She asked for the little table, but was everyone super uncomfortable? You won't sit next to a person who is brown at the dinner table, but you'll listen to her talk about Descartes and the works of Voltaire. That's right. Kills me. Uh, Yeah. And current events, too. I mean, she was up on everything. This girl was very intelligent. She was very intelligent. And she was also taught to be religious, brought up to be religious. I'd be willing to say if they are, in fact, treating her like a daughter, that seems like brought up would Mm -hmm. be the appropriate term. I'm not sure how to say it. Immersed in the Wheatley's devout lifestyle over at the Old South Church. Um, Her faith is key throughout most of her poems. However, she does use her classical education, which is actually, at this point, considered equivalent to a Harvard education. Yes. Anyway, she uses her classical education to mention characters from Greek mythology, Apollo in particular. Mm -hmm. She also uses astronomy, and that later got her scolded (laughs) for her pagan ways by another African-American poet who has a spectacular name. Jupiter Hammond, by the way. (laughs) Seriously, though, if you read them, there's a lot of God there. And I think Jupiter's standards were too high. (laughs) She was inspired to write a whole poem to scold the likes of me. I don't know that she was scolding as much as she was, uh, you're going to hate this word, evangelizing. But as a Christian, that was her duty. But this poem you're talking about is called An Address to an atheist, and it's urging atheists to convert to Christianity. It kind of uses a little flawed logic. I'm just going to leave it at that. But more interesting to me is the fact that the words God, road, and blood seem to be wanting to rhyme. So I kind of wonder about an accent. That's <laughs> oh, <laughs> interesting. The, the fascination I have with this poem and all poetry that rhymes, I think. The line that I pulled out actually did rhyme regardless of your accent. Muse, where shall I begin the spacious field to tell what curses unbelief doth yield? Start off light. (laughs) Oh, what curses. I'm early for brunch. I'll get a table. I could get there before you if I woke up, but I did not. Maybe (laughs) maybe advantage Susan. Yeah, well, you got me there. We're out the door by 7.30. Another evangelical poem that she wrote was called An Address to the Deist. Again, trying to convert people. Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> oh, I have such mixed feelings about Thomas Jefferson. I, I, I know that early on I was like uh, kind of crushing on him because he's a good looking guy. But uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, my first exposure to Thomas Jefferson was that play, 1776. 
Yes. Where they're like, what do you like about him? And everybody's expecting like, oh, he's triangular. His red hair flows down his back and blah, blah, blah. But he plays the violin is the song, you know. <laughs> Everyone was deflated. Like, that's not what we were hoping you would talk about. <laughs> uh, anyway, that little seed of love for Thomas Jefferson was planted in my heart, but it is not being allowed to grow very thoroughly. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the more reading I do. Well, anyway, she also wrote about current events, a shipwreck in 1767, led her to write what was to be considered her first published poem. You know, they tell you to write about what you know. Well, the Wheatleys had had two friends from Nantucket. This is not a limerick. <laughs> For dinner, how, wait, how can we mention Nantucket in, a, in an episode about poetry and then tell people it's not a limerick? That's like pulling the rug out. Although I have to tell you in a G-rated podcast, we oughtn't. No, we should, unless we rhyme it with bucket. <laughs> Correct. Okay. Mm. Okay. If you're unfamiliar with the New England coast, uh, Cape Cod is part of Massachusetts. It looks kind of like an arm flexing itself. Boston is on the muscle side, the upward muscle side. Nantucket is an island on the armpit side. <laughs> <laughs> no, as a crow flies, it's not that far. It's like 70 miles, but you can't crow fly in the 1700s, you have to sail around Cape Cod to get there. So it's like 365 nautical miles. This is a long trip, like getting to Newport. It's not that easy. Mm -hmm. These two men were telling a story about how they were racing the storm. They got caught by it and they almost died. And Phyllis later went up to her room and she thought, hmm, what if they had died? And then she went from there, which is such a creative process, you know. This happened, but what if this happened? The poem that she wrote is called On Mr.'s Hussy and Coffin. And she talks about if they had died and gone down into the sea, where would they end up? Would they have gone to heaven or would they have gone to hell? Again, it's a religious poem. She does wonder if Aeolus, Greek god of the wind, has caused the storm in the first place. Or maybe <laughs> Boreas. I did not realize there was a god only of the north wind, but... There is. He has purple wings, evidently. So she's mixing it up. There's a whole pantheon of people at fault and saving people, which I'm actually quite intrigued by. There were some elements creeping in. I love it. Yes. No, I agree. I mean, she's using all of her education in her poems, regardless of the source. Yeah, they're Christian in nature, evangelical, but they're not entirely Christian. Well, there are lots of references in the poems that I wondered how many people would know. Mm -hmm. Without even explanation. Like, would you have known who Boreas is without looking? Because I didn't. It's mm -hmm. like these books I love called Discworld where you can read them and it's just a story where there's trolls in a city and blah, blah, blah. But there are so many hidden literary and societal references that even I am shocked by some when I look through the annotated edition. Mm -hmm. And so I love that it can be read on different layers, but I'm just not sure if anyone without a classical education would be able to follow some of her references. Yeah. And I have to say at this very moment, our friend JD, is, his eyes are like little hearts for you because he just loves those Discworld books so much. <laughs> I just can't stop talking about him enough. And if you want to go in soft, go in with Hogfather. Hogfather equals Santa Claus. So you know it's not going to get that deep. <laughs> All right. Anyway, back to Phyllis. Uh, she wrote about the political unrest that was happening right outside her door in Boston. Okay. Boston is only two miles wide. I'm just telling you that because <laughs> anything that happens, quote, in Boston might as well have happened outside her door. 
but they lived on a prominent street where a lot of things happened. The riots over the Stamp Act, which we talked about way back in the Abigail Adams podcast, happened right in front of their house. The British sent reinforcements and tensions were high. There was an 11-year-old boy killed right outside the door by a British sympathizer during a street argument about taxes. Phyllis called him the first martyr for the cause. Her poetry almost, it's really just outlining the Revolutionary War. Like the even those things that you just mentioned, uh, when the Redcoats all arrived, she wrote a poem called The Arrival of the Ships of War and the Landing of the Troops. And about the 11-year-old boy who was shot, she wrote a poem called on the death of Mr. Snyder, murdered by Richardson. And there's another one that you actually learned about in history class, if you're American. Anyway, Crispus Attucks, who died in what was called the Boston Massacre. The Boston Massacre was definitely one of the precipitating events of the impending revolution. It happened right in public. It happened right in the neighborhood. She also wrote a poem about that, although it has been lost unfortunately, because it had to be taken out of her finished product because it was considered too revolutionary to put in a book that was published in Britain. So that poem's lost. Well, the whole thing was fertile ground for subject matter. But one thing she never really wrote about directly until much, much later and only in letters was the issue of slavery, which for an enslaved person, might have been more dangerous than war. Um, it seems like she knew how rare her position was and didn't take it too far. Her second most famous poem on being brought from Africa to America. There's been much analysis of this eight-line poem. "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, there's a Savior too, once I redemption neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye, their color is a diabolic dye. Remember Christians, Negroes, black as Cain, may be refined and join the angelic train. Now see, to me, reading that on the surface, it means, hey, everybody, we are also human and not irredeemable because that's what descended from Cain means, like that mm -hmm. you're the doomed side. And so, man, has there been analysis on this very simple poem. People hate it. <laughs> and they also <laughs> really like it. Like, But some people think it is her dismissing her whole heritage, saying that it was a benefit that she was stolen because it brought her to Christianity. People have argued on both sides of this, and it is vicious. <laughs> And even if you read it twice, looking at it from a different lens, mm -hmm. it's, it's easy to have the whole argument in your head, as happened to me. <laughs> but I think it's as close as she could come to saying, not necessarily the word hypocrite, but kind of. Mm -hmm. like, she wrote, weirdly enough, as she has considered herself a patriot, she wrote a poem called To the King's Most Excellent Majesty, almost that same year, where... One of the lines says, and this is another poke, a monarch's smile can set his subjects free. Like what subjects? White American subjects? I don't think that's who you mean. There was a poem that she wrote to the Earl of Dartmouth that includes the following lines. I, young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Africa's fancied happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. Steeled was that soul, and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved. Such, such my case, and can I then but pray that others may never feel tyrannic sway? That is the most pointed she ever gets about slavery. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty pointed. 
Yes. And it was also very, very personal for an 18th century poet who was mostly like, and these concepts are concepts, and then concepts do concept things. Like, it was like that. (laughs) But to have her be like, I myself was stolen by a dark soul, you know, that was Mm -hmm. radical. Yeah. After finishing all the research, I walked away saying that the hypocrisy of the colonists regarding slavery was a big issue for her. And I thought she did, given her place and time, I thought she did a great job of presenting that in her poems. You have to look at them, but that's poetry. You can't take poetry on the surface unless you're reading, what, Shel Silverstein or something? <laughs> <laughs> or any of those Nantucket limericks? You know? I don't know. You could probably find some analysis of Shel Silverstein that goes way beyond just the poem. My computer is like right next to me and I reached out to like do a search. <laughs> and thus... A rabbit hole is born. (laughs) Well, the famous and controversial evangelist preacher of the Great Awakening, George Whitefield, came to speak at Phyllis's church. The Reverend George Whitefield was a prominent English minister. He was instrumental in the founding of the Methodist Church. There really wasn't a record of her having listened to him, but given her activities in Boston, when he was there speaking, the chances of her listening to him were great. Because he did speak at the Old South Church, not just once, but multiple times. And that is a church that she attended. I would be very interested, although there's no way to know, if, because the Northerners allowed people of African descent to come to church service, but they always made them sit in the, quote, African corner. I'm wondering if Phyllis sat in the African corner or if she sat in the family pew, but there's no way to know. Mm-mm. Well, anyway, so either she was or she was not there, but she was definitely exposed to his philosophy. And this guy, this preacher, was so persuasive <laughs> that old Ben Franklin himself, who had gone to jeer and mock him, ended up emptying his pockets <laughs> in donations to this guy. So if a guy cloaked in the absolute cynical armor of Ben Franklin can be taken down by this guy. Imagine the emotion of the rest of the congregation uh, and Phyllis in particular. Hearing about his philosophy was a turning point in Phyllis's life. This was also about the same time that she was baptized. So her faith at this point in her life is extremely important and she's really focused on it. So listening to the words of Whitefield, would certainly have a huge impact. One of the things he was most famous for, he told the story of Abraham and Isaac. We've probably heard that before, but instead of standing behind the podium, he would hold his hands up to the sky and look as Abraham talking to God. And he would make the motion of the knife and be the son like, oh no, dad, don't kill me. And and it was shocking to people. He made it relatable. He made them feel the terror of the little boy. He made them feel the passion and the religious fervor of the dad. And it, man, he brought that stuff home. Mm -hmm. So good for him. Weirdly though, I just want to be very clear about some hypocrisy here. Mr. Whitefield had spent his adult life actively campaigning to bring slavery to Georgia. Yes, which had been founded as an anti-slavery experiment, which is weird for those of us who grew up with Gone with the Wind. I, I learned about this in a book I hate to even say the name of, by the well, way. What? No, no, you have to say it. It's a book that I checked out for a little light reading called White Trash, A 400-Year Untold History of Class in America. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, I'll have to put that in the show notes. Which just proves that I'm Hermione in real life because I checked it out for a little light reading, just like she did with the history of Hogwarts. Well, anyway, the theory was if there were no slaves 
to do the work. There would be plenty of work for the poorer white men who could then take care of their own families and feel pride in their lives. No more poverty. Hey, presto. That was the thought. No one let it run enough to figure out if that was going to be correct. George Whitefield fought tooth and nail to get that changed and considered slavery's eventual legalization there to be a personal victory. He himself owned 50 slaves the whole time he was talking about all this in front of the congregation. I wonder if Phyllis knew that. I'm guessing she did not. He is maybe more famous for scolding Southern plantation owners for their poor treatment of their own slaves. I just don't know about this guy. He was 100% justifying the institution of slavery by saying it was okay in the Bible. Well, that's something that would, an argument that would last, um, what year is it? Seriously? Mm -hmm. You know, it lasts a long, very long time. Well, he did treat his slaves humanely. He was famous for it, but I'm conflicted again. Just like with the Wheatleys, do we give him a cookie and a good report card for not being as bad as? Mm-hmm. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? So, No, I know exactly what you're saying. Exactly. Well, anyway, right after his electrifying series of speeches in Boston, George Whitefield died. And this meant a lot to 17-year-old Phyllis, who was inspired to write her first most famous poem. An elegiac poem on the death of that celebrated divine and eminent servant of Jesus Christ, the reverent and learned George Whitefield. Yeah, she probably could work a little bit on her titles. It was published in pamphlet form in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia with the subtitle By Phyllis, a servant girl of 17 years of age belonging to Mr. J. Wheatley of Boston and has been but nine years in this country from Africa. That's a selling point. And it is a selling point. I don't mean to say it's not, but I'm like, man, they included that on every single copy. It was a resounding success in America. It made her famous. Now, in England, it was published alongside the sermon of a famous preacher on the same subject. We wouldn't recognize him now, but at the time he, this preacher was so famous and she, by accident of the newspaper editor, had hitched her wagon to that star in England. In the body of this poem, she referred to Whitefield's patroness, the Countess of Huntingdon. He'd been her personal chaplain, which of course, in my cynical viewpoint I view as some sort of networking. It says, Great Countess, we Americans revere thy name and mingle in grief sincere. It actually goes on, we mourn with thee that tomb obscurely placed in which thy chaplain undisturbed doth rest. (laughs) So this worldwide acclaim led to a great idea. Mrs. Wheatley said, Phyllis, let us gather your poems into a book. And they chose 28 of her best works and then looked for a publisher. The way it worked there and in that time was you had to provide a list of 300, what they called subscribers, people who pledged to buy your book when it came out. That was the publisher's break-even point, and they wouldn't print it without this guarantee. Susanna put so much energy into promoting this project for Phyllis. They did work on it together, but she was networking, you know, behind the scenes to try and get the contacts to subscribe so that this book could be published. And they couldn't get enough people. Fine, said Mrs. Wheatley. We'll go to London with it, where they're more refined. (laughs) (laughs) She even encouraged Phyllis, and Phyllis did what she said to send that poem to the countess with a letter so the countess would know that this up-and-coming artist who is a christian which is a 
something that she supported. You know, she was building chapels around England. She had a lot of money. So it's like adding her on Instagram. <laughs> exactly. That's really all you need. You know, you can take it from there. Susanna sent a copy of the manuscript with one of her husband's ships, and the captain was given the job of finding a publisher when he got to his destination over in London, which he did almost immediately. But the publisher had a stipulation. Some sort of proof had to come in that these were really written by a slave, which would be the whole selling point in right. the first place. I have to say the general historical reaction at that these are all kind of medium as poetry, but awesome as poetry by a slave. Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm like cringing when I say it too. Well, anyway, so Mrs. Wheatley got 18 prominent men to sign affidavits. What Phyllis had to do was sit down with all of these men, answer their questions, and have them verify that she indeed had written all this poetry. Now, she did know a lot of these guys going in. So it wasn't like she was just somebody off the street that had to prove herself. But she was really having to prove herself. The affidavit, let's see if I got, I'm going to say the whole thing. We whose names are underwritten do assure the world that the poems specified on the following page were written by Phyllis, a young Negro girl who was about a few years hence brought an uncultivated barbarian from Africa. Ouch. And has ever been and now is under the disadvantage of serving as a slave in a family in this town. She has been examined by some of the best judges and is thought qualified to have written them. Yeah, there you go. Well, John Hancock put his signature on this one, too, although I think he just put it in regular size. <laughs> but she had a really good group of people. She had the governor and lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. And at the end, quote, Mr. John Wheatley, her master. Yeah. Mm. Well, now we had another hurdle, another requirement. This was standard in British publishing. You had to have a dedication to a prominent person for marketing purposes, like Jane Austen had been later, you know, in 1815, invited to dedicate something to the Prince Regent, who later became George IV. I think very reluctantly, because you can't really turn him down. She dedicated Emma to him, but I don't think she wanted to. No. We talked about that during the Jane Austen. Yes. Yeah. All that honor was in the future. And Phyllis and Susanna Wheatley decided to throw a Hail Mary and send that captain back with the affidavits and another copy of the book to deliver to the Countess of Huntington, who had been mentioned in Phyllis's poem that the Countess had in her possession, ideally framed on the wall. <laughs> All you could do is pray right? All you can do. Well, the captain didn't just deliver the manuscript. He literally stood and delivered it. He read it out loud to the countess. I wonder if he was handsome. I don't know. He was certainly a good reader because the countess agreed immediately. I wonder if having known Phyllis's name before, it had to have helped her to have her agree. Oh, yes. But the guy was supposed to go, hand it to the butler, walk away. Right. But right. instead, he got in to see the lady herself stood in front of her. There's a crackling fireplace. I imagine the lady has a glass of sherry. What is happening? <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm sure that's exactly how it went down. I'm just saying he must be pleasing to at least be around or she wouldn't have let him stand there and read her 28 poems. I don't know. I'm very interested in, <laughs> in recreating that scene in my mind. Well, the, the countess did agree, but there was a stipulation of her own. She wanted a portrait of Phyllis to go in. 
back across the ocean. He went to deliver that message. Oh my goodness, people. If we'd only had Google Hangout, this could have been taken care of all. But you know, months are going by. These voyages, these voyages, these voyages. So lucky for us, the Countess insisted because it's really the only official, as they say, contemporary, i.e. during her lifetime, picture that we have. It was painted by a fellow Boston slave with the amazing name of Scipio Moorhead, it is believed. And Evidently, it's considered an excellent likeness because the painter made a copy for Mrs. Wheatley, who hung it over her living room fireplace and often said to her guests, doesn't that look just like my Phyllis? It's almost as if she's about to speak to me. (laughs) She was such a good supporter. You know how my mom used to carry her History Chicks tote bag all over the world? (laughs) Yeah. And tell everyone about us. Well, Susanna Wheatley did the same kind of marketing. She would write to newspapers, getting her friends to tell a friend about my Phyllis's work. And I'm really softening to her. She was very serious about it. She was like embarrassingly proud, like Mm -hmm. a parent would be. At this point, I I completely agree with you because not only was she her heart into it, supporting Phyllis, but she was smart and she was connected. So she was using everything at her disposal to get Phyllis's name out there, almost as her agent or her publicist. And not for monetary gain. That's the thing. Like, usually you see people working hard to get a cut of the lolly, but she had no stake in this, at least financially. Well, it was decided that since Nathaniel Wheatley, that's the son of the family, the other twin, was headed to London on family business, that Phyllis should go too, make some appearances. It would be great publicity for the book. Also add realism. Once anyone met her, their doubts would just go away. The book's authorship would be defined <laughs> once mm-hmm. it met her. She couldn't fail to charm people. So the summer of her 19th year, back across the ocean, she went. She's not a terrified and naked child anymore, but a noted poet with her, I don't even know what to call him, I guess, young master, who I know. is a rich businessman. I know. In my head, I kept saying her stepbrother, but that's I know. not, yeah, not, that was maybe the relationship, but yeah. So um, the Countess had been notified by Susanna that Phyllis was coming and was writing to all of her acquaintances and setting things up. I'm so excited. She was a good choice of dedicate E. She was all about it. <laughs> she even set up a presentation for her to the king and queen, though it couldn't happen till the fall when court was back in session. Ooh, this is a connected person. I'm a call my friend the king. <laughs> Uh, Okay, Um, that's good. So when they got back in the fall, hooray, that was going to happen. And her reception in London could not have been better. She was the guest of honor at receptions and salons and dinner parties. She met Benjamin Franklin, who was working in London as sort of a colonial representative to England. Mm -hmm. Yeah, isn't that weird? She had to go to London to meet Ben Franklin. She was taken to the theater. She was taken to museums. Everywhere she went, she had an air of a celebrity. People were wanting to talk to her. Phyllis was often described as humble, serene, graceful, luminous. And I believe that she carried that to London and really, really sealed the deal for herself with impressing people. Well, she wrote back to her friend, Ober Tanner, in her modest way about all the people she met who were at least gentry, if not officially titled people, their benevolent conduct toward me, the unexpected and unmerited civility and graciousness with which I was treated by all fills me with astonishment. 
But lovely. The city's Lord Mayor himself gave her a present of a very rare copy of John Milton's Paradise Lost. That is one of her two favorite authors and inspirations from childhood. That is an amazing gift, especially in an era when books like your old book off the shelf was often prohibitively expensive, but a rare edition of a famous book, that is like cry-worthy gift. Mm -hmm. She often said that she was treated more like an equal in England than as an oddity. Just tying right into that, her trip there coincided almost exactly with a British ruling that said that slaves coming from the Americas did not have to return if they didn't want to. So slaveholders were like, I'm not bringing my slaves to London anymore because they could stay. She could have self-emancipated in London legally at this time. I don't know if that was in the back of her mind when she boarded the ship because she kept up with current events. This was, uh, it's called the Somerset case. If you want to look it up, we'll provide you a link. And, uh, you know, curiously enough, it was another Boston slave Mm -hmm. involved in this. The ruling was that slaves couldn't be sent out of England against their will. And typically that was seen as precedent. Um, Slavery was not made illegal in England until 1838, which is a lot later. But from this year, 1772, On a case-by-case basis, basically everyone just referred back to this judgment and said, see, can't send him back. Oh, okay. You know, Mm -hmm. the the end. So functionally, yes, um, she couldn't be compelled to leave against her will. But I just don't know. I can't imagine that she would have risked that family relationship. Mm -mm. I, I just don't know. Well, the Countess of Huntington invited Phyllis and, quote, her young master ugh, to visit her. She lived in Wales. It was quite a journey. You know, you had Mm -hmm. to make some plans. And it was while they were making plans for the visit to the woman who was really instrumental in getting her book published, that word came from home, purportedly, that Susanna was gravely ill. I don't know how that letter got there. No, neither do I, because she was really only there for about six weeks. So that's not maybe enough time for a letter to come from Boston and to find her. There's another theory out there. The ship that she had taken to London was the Wheatley ship, the London packet. It was a merchant ship. The theory is that the ship got filled with items to bring back. That's its main purpose. Its main purpose wasn't to shuttle Phyllis and Nathaniel back and forth. It was to get a load of import items so that John could, you know, add to his coffers back in the Americas. So there's a theory that says the ship was full and it was time to go back, that Phyllis always knew that there was an expiration date on her visit. Coincidentally, Susanna was ill. Well, and that was the polite and gracious excuse that you could give everyone, because when one's mother figure is ill, if you have to disappoint the king and queen, well, that's understandable. Mm-hmm. You know, but if you need to go back because your ride's here. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Your ride is trying to uh, beat hurricane season, too. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so either way, Phyllis was compelled to leave, uh, which was a grave disappointment, even if she knew that it might be a matter of weeks. So much had been set up while she'd been there. She missed meeting the countess. She missed meeting the king. Most importantly, she missed being there for the publication of her book. Uh, So she had to go back to Boston. Nathaniel didn't go because he was courting a British lady person and was there to arrange his wedding. So Phyllis, sad and dispirited, had to head back to Boston. And this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what life as a published poetess is like. 
Hiring can be pretty time-consuming. You post a job to several online job boards only to get tons of the wrong resumes. Then you have to sort through all those resumes just to find a few people with the right skills and experience. Those job sites that overwhelm you with the wrong resumes, they're not smart. That's why you should do the smart thing and go to ZipRecruiter.com slash History Chicks. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. It's powerful matching technology that scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, the right education, and the right experience. It actively invites them to apply for your job so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the United States. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash HistoryChicks. If you love this show, show your support to it and ZipRecruiter by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash HistoryChicks. H-I-S-T-O-R-Y-C-H-I-C-K-S. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash HistoryChicks. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And we are back, and Phyllis is back, back in Boston, and far away from the excitement when her book, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, was published in September of 1773. It was the first ever book published in the world by a Black American person. It was only the second by an American woman at all. She was definitely on the vanguard. It was extraordinarily well-received. Here's one of the reviews. One of the greatest instances of pure, unassisted genius the world has ever produced. Although, in that same article, they had to say again, by Phyllis, a Negro servant to Mr. Wheatley of Boston. It was very important to put that part in. I wish Phyllis could have been there in London to take a victory lap. I'm I know. sad that she had to hear all about the excitement from afar. Some of the reviews in England may not have been critical of her poetry, but they were certainly critical of the hypocrisy of, quote, those Bostonians, including Mr. and Mrs. Wheatley, who loud touted the slave poet, but did nothing to free her. Whoa. So, yes, that old hypocrisy again. Whether embarrassed by this publicity or just because they realized it was the right thing to do, Phyllis was given her freedom at some point soon after she came back from her trip to England. Though she did continue to live with the Wheatleys in daily life, on the outside probably seemed about the same, except the fame part. But deep in her heart, deep in her heart, there was a fundamental change. She had written in a letter to one of her correspondents, in every human breast, God has implanted a principle which we call love of freedom. It is impatient of oppression and pants for deliverance. I will assert that the same principle lives in us. She also said that God should bring about the downfall of those whose avarice impels them to help forward the calamities of their fellow creatures. She, in this letter, asked for help to convince people whose words and actions are so diametrically opposite of the strange absurdity of their conduct. People's cry for liberty could not coexist with the exercise of oppressive power over others. So basically, man, now that she was free, she was telling it like it was. So what is a great way to get that message out? How about printing it in the paper? 
which is exactly what happened. It was printed in seven New England papers. So can you hear the drumbeat of revolution? She refers to tyranny, which is in the public consciousness, and ties that to the concept of all people being free. So you guys are going to talk about that stuff. You also need to talk about this stuff. I think it was Mm -hmm. very genius. Yeah, I do too. And I think that that was um, a nugget of that was in those works that she did when she was very young. Mm -hmm. And she's just matured and gotten her confidence and um, is able to speak it out loud. When Phyllis was 20... She's only 20. Uh, um, Susanna Wheatley died at only 65 years old. Her rock, her steadfast supporter and cheerleader. It was devastating to Phyllis, of course, who was grateful to Susanna for all she'd done for her and who treated her, quote, more like her own child than any kind of servant. I really, this is in my heart, based on my experience with my mother, I hope Susanna got to see a finished copy of the book. I hope Phyllis got one of the London copies because the 300 books destined for the American market didn't come until after she had died. What was very interesting now, Phyllis has written a lot of poems in memory of people who have passed away. There's not one about Susanna. Now, perhaps Susanna was being humble and requested Phyllis not to write one because she could have done a great job. She could have wrote so many beautiful things about Susanna, but she didn't. I don't know, grief, maybe. I don't know. So I guess we could look at it two ways. It could be overwhelming grief, which I assure you paralyzes you. Mm -hmm. Or it could, I mean, I hate to think about it, but maybe it was like, bye, girl, bye. I don't think it was. I don't think it was either. I think in some of her letters, she did express some, you know, some grief. Well, now it was up to Phyllis to hustle, now that Susanna is no longer the hustler, and to get these books sold, these 300 books that had come um, to America in a crate. They did sell, I think, due to significant advanced publicity. So there's Susanna's legacy. The only one she was left, actually. And the books had slid in just under the wire because Britain slammed a blockade down on Boston Harbor over a little incident you might have heard of called the Boston Tea Party. (laughs) If you're American, you already know what that is. You do. (laughs) If not, I mean, if you've watched any Schoolhouse Rock, you also know what that is. If not, here is a quick synopsis. Britain hiked taxes on the colonies that Americans thought were unfair. Tea as a symbol of this, was the subject of a boycott by all American patriots. And I do believe that's why we started drinking so much coffee, the alternate (laughs) beverage. Right. And one night, 150 or so men snuck onto a couple of British ships and dumped their entire cargoes, which mostly consisted of tea, into the ocean, making the world's record largest, though salty, cup of tea. (laughs) There you have it. And the British people and the British government was very angry about that act of terrorism. Within a year, there were more British troops quartered in private homes all over Boston, including the Wheatley's house. Now, unlike Phyllis, Mr. Wheatley was one of those Americans who wanted to remain loyal to Britain, a Tory. And he decided to move his family out of Boston uh, to avoid trouble himself, too. And Phyllis went to stay with Mary Wheatley, her old tutor, the daughter in Newport. Well, that was nice of Mary that they were so close all Mm -hmm. this time. Um, She's writing things about the conflict. She sent a 42 line poem to George Washington, who wrote her back. I know. I know. <laughs> it did take him four months to write back to her. He did have some other things to do. 
He did. And he had no idea. He hadn't read any of her other poetry, even though she was widely published in papers. And he didn't even know how to address her. Is is it Miss? Is should I use it? You know, he had no idea that she was so young or the color of her skin. And he invited her to come and visit him. This is 1776. George is kind of busy, but he's taking time to visit with Phyllis. Well, he thanked her. He said he would have loved to have it published, but it seemed vain, you know. If she was ever in the neighborhood. And I quote, I should be happy to see a person so favored by the muses. Lovely. Now, there is a thought that maybe she didn't go. Some people doubt that she actually went. But tradition holds that in March of 1776, you not have to ask her twice if you're George Washington, (laughs) um, within a few weeks, she was sitting in the waiting room of his HQ in Cambridge. And I only wish we knew what they had talked about. Uh, Poetry, obviously, and maybe dropping all the modesty, sir. Because sure enough, her poem, His Excellency George Washington, was published only a few weeks later. Yes, in the paper. So mm-hmm. it it was very popular. It increased her fame. But as far as I'm concerned, the most important result of this poem was her personification of America as the goddess Columbia. We talked about this in a previous podcast, which I will mention in just a moment. But one of the lines was, divinely fair, with olive and the laurel buds in her golden hair. It was kind of a mixture of Athena and Apollo, a war goddess shining like the sun. It was Columbia versus Britannia. Britannia, Britannia, Britannia. <laughs> she did not invent the name Columbia to refer to America. Um, that was mm, three decades old. But she popularized the image. She gave it a personality, which would later boil down to Bartholdi's vision for the Statue of Liberty. There is a legacy for you, if nothing else. Phyllis Wheatley equal Columbia equals the Statue of Liberty. And I've put a lot of Columbia on that board, the Statue of Liberty, over on Pinterest mm-hmm. um, as she developed over the century between Phyllis Wheatley and the Statue of Liberty. So I'll put some more on Phyllis Wheatley, but I want to encourage you to go over and look at the American viewpoint of their representative warrior goddess. Um, anyway, so I think we can consider that the top of the roller coaster. I oh. think we are officially just at the part where you wave and smile. It's all downhill from here. When Phyllis was about 25, John Wheatley died. He left everything to his son and daughter. Phyllis wasn't even mentioned in the will. And shortly after that, Mary Wheatley also died. Phyllis is really alone. Because Nathaniel, the last family member left, had married a British woman. He was far away in London. Phyllis's patrons had scattered to the four winds, dead half of them, or fled back to Britain, or in the midst of the fighting because the war was still going on. A loaf of bread, for example, cost three times what it did before the war. The chaotic upheavals made it hard to find work, even if you were a skilled laborer or household worker, which Phyllis had never been even taught anything remotely practical. No, not at all. And because people didn't have the money, they certainly weren't buying her books any longer. She had been making a living as a poetess, as a published author until this point. She was in a giant pickle and she had a solution in front of her that it seems like the only option open to her at the time. 
which a lot of women in history have done. Shortly after Mary Wheatley died, Phyllis accepted a marriage proposal from a man who was named John Peters. Reports about him are kind of conflicting. Phyllis's lifelong friend Ober said in a letter, poor Phyllis let herself down by marriage. Some people called him smart, but lazy. He was described as a respectable man of color, very handsome, well-mannered, wore a wig, carried a cane, and acted like a gentleman. Other, (laughs) Other reports aren't so kind. They say he was educated and he practiced law. This is a point in time where all you have to say is, hey, I'm a lawyer and you're a lawyer. What it is, is he dabbled in so many things and was successful in none of them. Um, so one quick word on that lawyering, at least he advocated for black defendants in court. So whether he was officially a lawyer, I mean, I think you can just write your name on a piece of board and nail it on the, like, right. hello, I'm a lawyer, Esquire. At least he was attempting to do some good in that way. I will say this kind of dispersal of your talents was also something that John Wheatley was Very known true. for. So I think, you know, you sometimes marry your father. Um <laughs> Well, you know, like you marry a man that you have looked up to. I I think that she thought, well, perhaps this guy is also talented in many areas. So there it is. What we have on the subject from Phyllis herself is exactly zero. She never mentioned him. There's not in any of her existing letters, in none of her future poems. She just doesn't mention her husband, which is curious to me. Yes. Well, the Peterses, as they are now, seem to live in a big house in a fashionable area of Boston just based on tax records. They are paying a lot of tax on something. Their first child died at only a week old, followed in a year by the birth of their second child. Whoa. Okay. And now we begin. Well, Phyllis tried to get a second book of poems published, but they're just... No takers. I mean, it was a turbulent world right then, both in Britain and America, I assure you. And when you're focused on food and survival, poetry slips (laughs) down Maslow's hierarchy of needs a little. If you're familiar with that concept, you know, food, level one, security, level two, friends, level three, prestige, level four. Creativity doesn't come in until the end. No. It's the very last thing that you focus on when you've got everything else in order. So wartime and economic distresses really prevented her from pursuing her actual career. Everyone was suffering economic hardship. The Peterses ended up having to move to this small village north of Boston where life became quite a different animal for Phyllis. This period of time took a toll on her health, on her psyche. She'd never be really healthy again. And I'm wondering, based on the evidence, if she might have contracted TB during this time period. Yeah. Yeah, because she always had respiratory issues. But just the way she's really physically worn down at this point in her life. Yeah, that would certainly point to that, wouldn't it? So I don't know. It was not good. After the war was finally over, the fighting part, anyway, I think there's still paperwork. But that's a formality for the (laughs) paperwork in an economic depression. Yes. Phyllis and her second child moved into the house of one of Mrs. Wheatley's nieces who had a little school for girls. And Phyllis taught lessons at this school in exchange for just room and board. And her husband wasn't with her, just the child. Her second child died here at the school 
at only a few months old. Well, Mr. Peters was trying to make a living for himself as a liquor dealer. Liquor stores are usually a good moneymaker, but his financial situation was never great. And he did sell all the remaining copies of her first book, so that's good. But I'm sorry to say that he also sold Phyllis's copy of Paradise Lost that she'd been given by the Lord Mayor of London himself. I'm sorry that's gone. And we know where it is. It's in the collection of Harvard University. So it's not gone from the world. It was just gone from Phyllis's life. Phyllis did have a couple more poems printed in newspapers. And perhaps if she had more time, she could have built up her career again. But Mr. Peters was committed to debtor's prison while Phyllis was pregnant with their third child. And she was reduced to living in, quote, a poor Negro boarding house in a desperately degraded section of town. It's just such a sad, quick ending. And there's just no ceremony about it at all. On December 5th, 1784, alone, sick, and frankly, betrayed by fate, Phyllis Wheatley Peters died in her bed in the poorhouse of complications of childbirth, and her newborn child died a few hours later. Despite an announcement being put in several newspapers, not one person came to her funeral. Not one person. She was buried with her child somewhere in Boston. Since there's no headstone, no one today knows where. Somewhere in either Copps Hill Burying Ground in Boston or the Granary Burying Ground near John Hancock, John Wheatley, Paul Revere, and Crispus Attucks. But this is a bad ending. There is no, there's just no sweet talking the fact that that's a bad ending. Here's an alternate ending that could have happened if we had a time machine. She met the queen. She stayed in England where Nathaniel and his wife treated her like a sister and she married a nobleman. The end. And became uh, the most famous poetess that England had ever known. But that's unfortunately not what I can tell you because it's not, it's not the truth. Mm-mm. No. And then to me, this goes right back to, did she consider self-emancipating when she was in London? I don't know. I don't know. Voltaire himself had written about her. George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, John Hancock, dukes and countesses and the Lord Mayor of London were all happy, happy to have been in her orbit. She was even able to get Benjamin Franklin to write the dedication in the book that she was unable to sell. The second book of poems, Ben Franklin. So, so after her death, her poetry fell a little bit by the wayside until it was brought out of the closet again. Abolitionists liked to use it as evidence. It's very fashionable to say, we can't free the slaves. They're unintelligent. They couldn't fend for themselves, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, yes. What about this book then? And look at the affidavits at the beginning. John Hancock himself said this person wrote these. And you can't deny John Hancock, can you? You know, so she, however, has been inspirational to future generations of African-American writers. And there are schools named after her all over the country, notably Wheatley Hall at UMass, um, dedicated in 1985. There is a great memorial that I really like in Boston. Mm-hmm. It's um, on the Commonwealth Avenue Mall at 484 Commonwealth Avenue, if you want to Google it. It's three women, Abigail Adams, Lucy Stone, and Phyllis Wheatley, who all came from or lived in Boston, and they're life-size. They're not monumental. It's three women who are actually using their pedestals, which I thought was very good. And Phyllis Wheatley's is a desk that she's sitting at. Lovely. I do love that you can still get her books, though. You can still read her poetry. I bought it. 
I bought her book of complete works. Because mm. after I'm not a poetry person, so it took me a while to wrap myself around her writing. So once I did, I was like, oh, I like it. I like it a lot. Speaking of books, should we do media? Sure. Okay. As far as biographies go, um, the one I used the most was Phyllis Wheatley, Biography of a Genius in Bondage by Vincent Coretta. But secondly, I used Heavenly Tidings from the Africa Muse by Richard Kegel. He borrows a lot from Coretta's work, but he does it respectfully and with attribution, and he adds a little bit more. His is from 2017, whereas Coretta's is from 2011, so it's a little bit older. But those are the two main ones that I use. I actually found very helpful a book in the American Women of Achievement series, Phyllis Wheatley by Merle Richmond. This one's from 1988. It's a thinner book, but it is not a child's book. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a good um, intro, and it gives you just enough background without diving too deep into rabbit holes. That's where I found your first book that you had mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I have it and I like it, but sometimes you had to kind of filter out the story from all the extraneous background. Right, right, right. Which is a little those, challenging. Yeah, in both of those, there was a lot about the Revolutionary War and men who were doing stuff at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, flip, flip, flip. <laughs> There are a lot of children's books, though, which makes me very happy. The one that I like the most was Phyllis's Big Test. It's by Catherine Clinton. It's illustrated by Sean Qualls. I thought the illustrations were very charming. It's told as a kind of a motivational speech that Phyllis had with herself on her way to the meeting with those 18 men in Boston that had to verify her work. It kind of made me a little weepy at the end, actually. I love that one. So the book that I like, children's book-wise, Phyllis Sings Out Freedom, the story of George Washington and Phyllis Wheatley by Anne Malaspina, illustrated by Susan Keeter. I really do like it. Um, the little blurb on the back cover says, Few people believed a slave girl could write about war and freedom, but Phyllis Wheatley became a famous poet who wrote a poem to inspire General George Washington. And then it has a picture of her in a bonnet and apron writing the alphabet. So it is pretty cute. Also, the complete works you can get for free. I know on Bartleby. Um <laughs> I bought it, so it's on my shelf. <laughs> okay. But I'm just saying, if you want to read it online, um, there are several places. It's been in the public domain for years and years, so yeah. um, you needn't worry about that. But um, yeah, there's plenty of places for e-reading. Mm-hmm. And if you're into poetry, there's African-American Poetry, edited by Arnold Rampersad and Marcellus Blunt. It's illustrated by Karen Barber. It was colorful. Um, it would be good for kids who have already you know, grasped Shel Silverstein. Um, there's illustrations and poems from Phyllis um, through Alice Walker and Langston Hughes. I thought it was a great collection of poems. There's also, if you like the online version of poems, there is a website that I really like called poetryfoundation.org. Mm-hmm. Um, you can search by Phyllis Wheatley to read all of hers. Um, there's a lot of background there, which I thought was good. Yeah, there was. And they approached it from the, you know, the poetry side of it, not just the facts of her life, but, you know, how it affected her work, which is what you would expect from the Poetry Foundation, I suppose. 
And I don't have a whole lot of other links. I have you can you can still go see the Old South Meeting House if you would like to be steeped in the religious atmosphere in which Phyllis grew up. Um, they're not open all the time, but they're open a lot for tours. So if you are out and about in Boston, it's probably something you should not miss. If you find yourself in Boston in August, Phyllis Wheatley Day is August 18th. There's a lot of events at the Old South Meeting House, and we will link you up to all of that. Also, masshist.org has a whole series of links on the difficulty of being a freed slave in Boston. They also have a lot of her letters. Um, There's a picture of her writing desk which I thought was lovely. So that's a really good resource to get not just the poetry, but her correspondence, which thankfully still exists. A lot of it does. As to movies, there is really, again, there's a hole. And there's not a Drunk History episode either. There's two holes. (laughs) Um, There is a documentary out there with a super suspect name that I have not seen, but it's called Phyllis Wheatley, Make Her Black and Make Her Sing. Mm. Yeah, okay. I, I did not see that one. Thanks. So, I would report on it if I did, but I did not. I just don't know. I cannot even imagine. No. Well, that is it. That is all we have on Phyllis Wheatley. And in closing, since no one went to her funeral and I don't think anyone delivered an elegy, how about this? An homage written years after her death by a poet known only as Horatio. As if by heaven inspired, did she relate the soul's grand entrance at the sacred gate? And shall the honor which she oft applied to others' relics be hers denied? Oh, that the muse, dear spirit, owned thy art to soften grief and captivate the heart. Then should these lines in numbers soft arrayed preserve thy memory from oblivion's shade. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you learned something today, you know the drill. Please leave a review for us on iTunes or tell a few of your friends about us. Don't forget to post your egregious childhood poetry. The best place to share them is the lounge. Just go to the Facebook page, hit the button at the top that says join group, and just answer one question to prove you're not a robot. And then post away. I can't wait for your poetry stylings. The end song for this episode is If These Walls Could Talk by Andre Rodriguez. Used by the History Chicks by special license. If you like his song, you can buy it for yourself at Amazon Music. If these walls could talk, what would they say to me? Would they speak to me in riddles? Or would they speak to me in poems? If these walls could talk, what would they say to me? Would they speak of hollow mansions? Or would they speak of a true home? What would they say to me? If you would let them speak, what would they say? If you'd let go. walls could talk what would they say to me or would they be too weary to speak with me at all if these walls could talk what would they say to me would they speak of terrible secrets 
grace? Or would they speak of saving grace? What would they say to me if you were to let them speak? What would they say if you'd let go? Oh, if these walls could talk, what would they say to me? Or would they be too weary to speak with me at all? If these walls could talk, what would they say to you? Would they speak in tongues of angels or cry out violently from hell? And if these walls could talk, what would they say to you? Would they leave you wishing that you never heard all they can tell? What would they say to you if I would Talk, what would they say to you? But for now, we can pretend there are no walls, and maybe that's the very reason that they cannot speak at all.